those of you that weren't with us last week and you're thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> well, I have the privilege of filling in these two weeks for Alex while he and his family are enjoying vacation. And uh, it's a privilege again to be able to share the word of God with you. My name is Chris Ruer. We have, my wife Amy and I have been attending Generation for about two months. And I have about 20 some years of ministry behind me. So I always appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and share the word of God with you. So I hope you had a good week. I hope you've come prepared. It's a great spirit of worship in here this morning. And really, regardless of whether your week was a week of down the chute or up the ladder, that's a reference to last week's message if you haven't heard it, regardless of where you are, you come to the right place. Because in this place, the presence of God and in the community of God's people, we find the empowerment and the encouragement that we need to go forward in this walk of faith. So good choice on being here. Last week, we looked at the questions that Jesus asked. Jesus asked a lot of questions, and they're worth considering. That's the primary way that he inspires us. It's the primary way that he challenges us and gets us to think about this thing that we call faith and modeling our life on the example that he's given us. Do you have any idea how many questions Jesus actually asked. After I preached last week, I decided to go back and actually find an answer because I just knew it was a lot. I had it scribbled out on seven and a half pages of a yellow pad, but I found a guy who wrote a book, a guy by the name of Martin Copenhaver in his book, Jesus is the Question, actually tells us how many questions. So give me some guesses. Give me a couple of quick guesses of all the questions that Jesus asked. How many do you think the total is? A thousand? Somebody else? 110? Somebody else. Take three guesses. 307 questions that Jesus poses to us, to those of us who have begun this path of investigating who he is. And why does he ask so many questions again? He wants our faith relationship with God to be encouraged and to be challenged, and he wants us to wrestle with our inherent preconceptions of who God is and who Jesus is, as well as our doubts. Do you know it's okay to wrestle with doubts? Do you ever have doubts? I have doubts all the time about my relationship with God. But they're doubts that are couched in faith, and that's what makes all the difference. And we're encouraged to have these doubts. We're encouraged to wrestle with these doubts and asking questions and trying to figure out the answers within our own hearts and our own minds is an important part of that. So last week we started with the question, what do you want? You remember we're telling the story of John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus to be the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. And the apostles, they were his disciples at that point, John and Andrew, hear him say that. And they begin to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? And it's a question we have to begin to ask ourselves on this journey because it's the very first question, right? Why are we investigating? Why are we following Jesus in our lives? I put it to you this way. Why are you here this morning? All the other beautiful things you can do on a beautiful summer Sunday, why are you here? There's a reason that you have. Do you know the reason? Can you proclaim what that reason is to yourself? And so Andrew goes through this experience, and he begins to follow Jesus because 
John the Baptist has said something very important about who this Jesus is. And then he accepts Jesus' invitation to come and spend some time with him. He becomes convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the one that he and all of the fellow Israelites are looking for as the deliverer of Israel. And then he's inspired to share the good news. He's excited about what he's found out, and he wants to go and share it. And, of course, the first person he shares it with is his brother Peter. So there were four takeaways. Let me just recap these for you from last week. And I do this because it's an important lead into this week. The four takeaways. First is our motivation determines our connection to Jesus. God's presence is always an open invitation to us. Jesus reveals himself and his purposes to those who will actually take the time to pursue him. And then lastly, our experience of Jesus as we get to know him, as our intimacy with him increases, then we begin to be inspired to start telling other people, let them know. So that's last week. Today we're going to jump ahead three years in time. And Andrew and Peter and all the other disciples have been following Jesus for this time period as he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, as he's teaching them about what it means to be in relationship with the Heavenly Father. And they're watching him do all this incredible ministry. He's healing the sick. He's meeting the needs. He's bringing people who are forced to the margins of society into a place of dignity, into a place of value. He's restoring them, if you will, to their created image, the image of God. And in all this earthly time, he's been doing that. He's been pointing towards his ultimate goal and his ultimate reason for being here. And he knows his time is nearly up, and he wants to ensure that all of these people who have been following him, especially those who have walked closely with him, are prepared for what's coming. Because he knows that it's not what they're expecting. Have you found that your walk with Jesus is often filled with things that you're not expecting? Sure you do. That's what life is, right? That's what it means to be human and to be engaged with other humans on this planet. Even John the Baptist wasn't sure, right? The one who proclaimed, I saw the dove come on him, and I know that that's the one God anointed, the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world, at one point winds up saying, are you the one who we thought, or should we look for somebody else? Doubt questioning this is all a normal part of our walk and it's an okay part but here as Jesus prepares for the end he wants to make sure that they understand what's happening and so he needs his followers to grasp his true identity as God's anointed king in order to make the kingdom a reality on earth the way it is in heaven just as we sang in the song we just finished so today our question is this who do you say that I am? And this is a question of identity. Identity is important, right? Take a look at this. I saw this video this past Friday on the news. Did you see this story? It's a question of identity. Something maybe not quite what we think it's supposed to be. 
Egypt is accused of trying to fool visitors by painting zebra stripes on donkeys. A student visiting the zoo noticed smudges on the animal's face and took this picture. Zoo officials insist the animals are in fact zebras, but animal experts say real zebras have black snouts and more consistent parallel stripes. They are also bigger than donkeys. Now, this is not the first time a zoo has seen controversy over a zebra donkey dupe. In 2009, a zoo in Gaza admitted to painting two donkeys with black and white stripes. A zoo in Egypt is accused of trying to... <laughs> I like the use of the word dupe. An even better story, you might remember a couple of years ago, there was a zoo in China that had a couple of lions in exhibit. And they were real lions, but they had to be taken out for medical care. And in their place, they replaced these lions with chow chows, the dogs with the big fluffy mane. They fluffed the manes up, and somebody even recorded the dogs barking and them saying, that's the lion's roar. So... What will we fall for? Jesus, if you think about it, has been identified quite differently by people throughout the ages and throughout the world, right? But the question is, does identity really matter? Of course, the answer is yes. How we identify someone is important because it affects how we relate to them, right? The relationship is based on the identity. Let me give you an example. My wife Amy is one of nearly four billion females on the face of the earth. One of four billion, makes you feel special, right? But she's also one of dozens of women that I know really well. But then she's also one of several very close female friends that I have, but she's the only person on the entire earth among all the females that I identify as my wife. And so I treat her differently than I treat any of you other ladies here or anywhere else that I encounter because the relationship is based on the identity. And so that's why it's important for us to decide who we think Jesus is, how we identify him. So the story is going to pick up in Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bible or a phone app and you want to follow along, Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13, it says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, let me assure you, Jesus is not interested in his celebrity status. That's not why he's asking the question. He's not trying to find out who's following him on Instagram or how many likes he has on Facebook. This is a question that is actually a setup question to the next one. But it's important for us to understand the location in which he asked this question. Caesarea Philippi is a very beautiful place in northern Israel. It's located in the Golan Heights. I think we have a picture of it here. It was a city founded in the 3rd century BC by Philip of uh, Philip the Tetrarch, who was one of the leaders after one of the Herod kings after Herod the Great, one of his sons. It is the home of the spring which serves as the source of the Jordan River. And it was originally settled centuries before by Alexander the Great. And it was called Panias. And it was named for the god Pan, the Greek god Pan. You know this guy, right? You've seen pictures. The guy that's half goat, half human, always playing the flute. He was the god of the wild and desolate places, or the god of shepherds. And 
today, instead of being called Panias, it's called Banias with a B, and it happens to be one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel. Uh, I had the pleasure of being there several times. There's a beautiful uh, set of remains of the temple of King Herod Agrippa. But the reason it's important for Jesus' question is it's completely away from the religious culture of his time and place. He's taking them out of their normal setting to a place that actually is kind of eerie, if you will, or is definitely kind of pagan in the mindset of a devoted Jewish follower. And he brings them there and asks them this important question, who do all those people back there All those people that represent the past, all those people that represent the old way of doing things, who do they say that I am? And then he answers, or they answer, uh, well, he says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man just means human. That's a a way of, literally, it means a human being. It's the way Jesus self-identifies most often in his teaching. I am the Son of Man, he says. But it also is the prophetic revelation that any good Jewish student would understand that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is one of the most amazing prophetic pieces of the Old Testament. It talks about the coming of the Son of Man and how he approaches the throne of God, which is named the Ancient of Days or the Ancient One. And he's given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world, it says, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That's the Old Testament label of the Son of Man. And here you have Jesus walking around saying, that's who I am. I'm that son of man. The question is, who do you say that I am? Well, first, who do the people say that I am? Who does the culture say that I am? Because we know how Jesus was viewed, right? We know how the religious leaders, the authorities, the Pharisees, they all saw him as this wild-eyed prophet who was making no sense, but is actually becoming a threat to their system. And we know how the Roman authorities viewed him always keeping a careful eye to make sure he wasn't leading a rebellion, wasn't going to be another one of these self-styled messiahs who was going to create an actual revolution and fight against Rome. And the people, again, who really didn't matter to most of culture, the ones on the margins and out in the, on the sides, they weren't sure who he was. But his own disciples here, when he poses the question, they say this in verse 14, well... Some say, you're John the Baptist, come back. Some say, you're Elijah. Some say, other prophets like Jeremiah. And then he drives home the question. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Again, this is a question of relationship. It's a question that actually every single one of us in this room has to answer. It's a question that has eternal significance. Because he made a claim of who he was, and we have to respond, yes, I believe that, or no, I don't believe it. Because what are the options? C.S. Lewis, famous British writer, posed what is commonly called the Jesus trilemma. He says that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. In fact, in depth, his quote says this, you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let none of us come away with any of that patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Because he has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? Well, that was the standard view for a long time. And then some pretty smart guys came along and said, well, that's true, but it's based on the fact that you believe that what the Bible says really is accurate. That what Jesus claimed about himself has been faithfully recorded. Did Jesus actually make the claims that the Bible says that he did? Are the gospel accounts of Jesus of Nazareth the stuff of legend, or are they historically reliable? What do you think? Either way, either choice that we make, it depends on faith, right? We have to take it by faith. There's no way of proving either way. But the question is, what explanation has the greater probability? Is the Bible reliable? Are the accounts of Jesus historically accurate? Or is this whole thing just made up? If you're unsure, that's okay. We've all been unsure at one point. But let me recommend something to you. If you are interested in this question, there's a fantastic book called Lord or Legend, written by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy, which I would encourage you to investigate. Because how we answer has some important impacts. First, it impacts, of course, our relationship with God. If this man is claiming to be the son of God, then how we relate to God really depends on how we relate to Jesus. But it also impacts our personal identity too, doesn't it? Because who you say he is then determines who you say you are in relationship to him. Your personal identity is at stake as well. If he's a legend, in other words, then we're only hearers. We're only listeners of this fascinating legend or story that people tell us. If he's a respected moralist, if we want to go the teacher route, regardless of what C.S. Lewis says, then we're really just kind of admirers of his teaching and of his life, right? But we don't necessarily embrace it. We don't necessarily make it our own. But if he's Lord... If he is the Son of God, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, then you and I are subjects of him. If he is the king of heaven and his kingdom has come to earth, then we're all part of that kingdom, whether we're part willingly or whether we're a part unwillingly. If he's Lord, he's Lord, right? And so the question is, how do we see it and how will we respond to it? Are we going to present ourselves? Do we self-identify as disciples, those who are interested in pursuing the relationship, interested in having our lives begin to match up with his life? So let me give you a couple reasons as we continue here why it's important, why identity matters. The first reason is we who believe Jesus to be, or who we believe Jesus to be, I should say, is a reflection, again, of our own spiritual consciousness. Or to put it in contemporary language, are we woke to the, who this Jesus is? Continuing along in Matthew 16, after he says, who do you say that I am? We get our good buddy Simon Peter again, being the first to jump in and offer him. Peter says, 
you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. What's Messiah mean? Again, it just means God's anointed one. It means the one who God has called to be king, the one who is there to fulfill God's purposes and God's plan on the earth by initiating the kingdom come. Now, does Peter understand? Does Peter even know what he's saying? Does Peter ever know what he's saying? Does he understand it all? Does he, does he recognize what Messiah means? Does he know what God's purposes and God's plan are? No. No more than you and I do sometimes when God begins to move in our lives. But see, here's the thing. You don't have to have it all figured out to correctly recognize Jesus as Lord. Can I say that again? You don't have to have it all figured out to begin this journey of faith by recognizing Jesus is God's anointed one. And that's a good thing. Because none of us have it all figured out. Some people like to act like they have it all figured out. Some people will really get off telling you how they've got it all figured out. But the truth is none of us really know any more than Peter does when he stands and he makes this confession. But listen to what Jesus says in response in verse 17. Jesus replied, you are blessed. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Catch that. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. The ability to call Jesus Lord is not an intellectual decision. It is not someone, something someone can catechize into you by saying, learn this, believe this, live this. Jesus clearly says, the Father in heaven has revealed this to you. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, says it this way. He says, no one can call or say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, he's not saying, can my mouth form the words? Anybody's mouth can form the words. But what he's saying is, your life can't proclaim that Jesus is my Lord unless the Spirit of God is already within you making that declaration. And then... He goes on to say to Peter in verse 18, Now I say that you are Peter. See, his name is Simon. His his birth name is Simon. He's the son of John. So his name in Hebrew would be Shimon bar Yonah. And Jesus says, no, forget that. I've got a new identity for you. You are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus gives him a new identity. When we come into that faith relationship, when the Holy Spirit enables us to recognize Jesus for who he is, then God comes and says, I'm giving you a new identity. I'm giving you a new name. The book of Revelation talks a lot about the beauty of being in God's presence forever and how we each get a new name. So if you hated your birth name, you're in good luck. But it's a new identity. It's a new way of relating to God. But I always like the way he said the powers of hell. If you're familiar with the older translations, it's the gates of hell. Let me show you the gates of hell. That big grotto that you saw in the picture of Caesarea Philippi used to be the source of the Jordan River. But now it's basically dry. The river itself or the spring is underground. 
But that's what people called in that day and time the gates of hell. It's a very foreboding place, a cave that goes almost immediately downward. And so Jesus brings them here to, for a very strategic reason and points this out in a very strategic reason. But his meaning can't be missed, that once we are in relationship with him, once we are part of the body of Christ as the church, then all of the forces of evil, all of the hatred, all of the violence, all of the sin that we see in the world cannot stand against us. And don't you wish we were living in that reality? Don't you wish the church would recognize this truth? Don't you wish that we would understand the rock upon which we're built? He goes on in verse 19 and says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. If I reached into my bookcase over there and gave you the keys to my car, you'd like that, right? You'd go take it for a spin, do whatever you want with it. This is something so much more vital, so much more important. God says to Peter here, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. He's giving him, Jesus is transferring his authority to his church. That's why our relationship matters. That's why the identity that we have of him and his identity of us and our own identity matters so much because we've been given so much authority. And so the second reason why identity matters is this. Who we believe Jesus to be dictates our place in God's will and in his kingdom purposes. It positions us in the great thing that God is doing in the earth. It positions us within the body of believers, the followers of Jesus, and as God moves through that with his spirit and directs his purposes and his plans, we either choose to jump in or we stand back. If we jump in, we're fully immersed in the things of the spirit. If we stand back, then we're not participating at all, regardless of what we confess with our mouths. Our lives are either filled with the spirit or they're not filled with the spirit. So who we believe Jesus to be dictates our place. And then in verse 20, he goes on to say, then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, why would you want that? You would think Jesus would say, now go and proclaim me to everyone. And eventually he will, right? But he won't do it until he gets on the opposite side of the cross, the opposite side of the empty tomb, when they real really are able to understand what his mission and his purpose is. Here, he doesn't want them to go back into Jerusalem, back into Israel, and start saying Jesus is the Messiah because they'll have the same misconception that they did. Those people will still expect the same political, military leader to rise up and throw off Rome, just like our human selves always want to do, instead of understanding that the kingdom of God has lived exactly the opposite. It's laying down our lives not making the other person lay down their life. So he says, don't tell anybody that he's the Messiah. And then he begins to unfold the story for them, unfold God's plan. In verse 21, he says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but... On the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And then look at verse 22. Peter, oh, Peter, just shut up and stand back there and listen. 
But Peter took him aside. <laughs> uh, Jesus, let me explain things to you here. Jesus, come with me. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, Peter's well-intentioned, right? We love Peter. Very well-intentioned, but it's an amazing thing to come out of the mouth of the one who just a few weeks later will actually deny that he even knows Jesus, much less call him Lord, right? Will claim he has nothing to do with him, had no recollection of any relationship with him after Jesus is arrested and Peter has something to put on the line. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And then look at this dramatic thing Jesus says in verse 23. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get away from me, Satan. Woo! You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. Satan? <laughs> I told you God identifies us, right? The last thing you want to be identified with is, is God's enemy. But that's how strongly there's a warning here for us. This strong rebuke indicates that whenever we begin to deviate from the will of God and begin to seek after our own will, our own purposes, then we are standing on unholy footing. So this tells us a lot about the correlation between identity and expectations, right? Amy's my wife. I have expectations of her as a wife that I don't have of anybody else, and she has expectations of me as a husband that we don't have with anybody else. Do I always live up to them? Yeah, no. <laughs> Nor does she live up to mine. Any relationship is going to have ups and downs, right? Any relationship is going to have to grow and to go through hard times and to adjust. And it's no different in our relationship with Jesus. But know that our expectations of God have to be laid in submission to his desire and his will for each of us. That's what it means to call him Lord. That's why he's king and we're subjects. We don't get to dictate, no matter how well-intentioned we are, we don't get to say to Jesus, no, that's not how it's going to happen. Because if you think you have that power, then I think you're mistaken. So the third reason why identity matters is because who we believe Jesus to be determines our commitment to follow his example and his instruction. If Jesus had said to them right there at that point, I'm going to go and die, and guess what? All of you are going to die too. You're all going to give your life as martyrs for the fact that you believe who I am. You're not going to have it easy. People are going to hate you. People are going to seek to put you to death. Do you think any of them would have stayed at that point? Do you think anybody would have gone, hmm? You know what? I've got to get back to And so we have to understand if we're going to be committed, if we're going to be determined to follow Jesus, to follow his example, if we're going to submit our lives to his instruction, then we need to be sure of who he is. His identity has to be settled in our hearts. Because here's what he says in verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you, listen to this, if any of you want to be my follower, and think about that for a second, 
There's not a person in this room that doesn't want the benefits and the blessings of being a follower of Jesus, right? Up to and including the idea of eternal life. I don't think you'd be here this morning if that's not at least of interest to you. We all want God to bless us. We all want to be able to know that we have a security in our relationship with the one who created us and the one to whom we will ultimately give an answer. So if any of you wants to be my followers, here's what Jesus says. You must give up your own way. That's a hard message in our culture. We are conditioned from birth to having our own way, are we not? Either buying it or working for it or whatever. We are rugged individualists. We live in a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of culture, right? What's the term? Yankee ingenuity? We all do it. We all make our own way. Jesus says that's, that's a lie. That's a delusion. Have you discovered yet in your life that you really can't do that? If you have it, you will. And if you have, you will again. That's the cheery news for this morning. But the encouragement is you're never alone because you're following him. He is with you. His spirit that enables you to call him Lord is inside of you. But you must give up your own way. You must surrender that part. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. You must go in the same direction that Jesus is going. Because here's what he says at the end in verse 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's the great paradox of Christianity. The question is, do we really believe that? Do you take that statement to heart? Will you resist everything culture tells you? Will you resist everything that your human nature feels is natural and normal and lay it down for the sake of who you believe him to be and thereby actually gain the eternal life that he promises? It's a great paradox. It's simply a matter of who you will allow to rule your life as the worship team comes forward. Let me just close with this. Who will rule your life? That's what this whole thing is about. That's what Jesus is challenging us on this morning. Who do you believe him to be? If he's Lord, then yes. It's much better that he run your life than you run your life. If he's a lunatic or a liar, absolutely not. Keep going with what you're doing. God bless you. I hope it works out for you. But I don't really think human nature... Human history proves that it does. Are you going to run your life or is God going to run your life? So let me ask you to do this. I'm going to leave you with a question for contemplation for this week. Sometime within this week, just set aside some time and ask yourself this. Is there a part of me that really struggles to embrace the Lordship of Jesus because I doubt who he really is? Am I struggling with the idea of Jesus as Lord because I'm not really convinced of who he is? 
But again, let me encourage you, because faith is a journey. It doesn't matter, as I said last week, it doesn't matter where you are on the chutes and ladders board. You might be at square one, you might be at square 98, but you're not done journeying yet. You might be at the bottom of a chute or the top of a ladder, but you're not done the journey yet. And faith, coming to that trust in Jesus, is a journey. So it's okay where you are today. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But know this, Jesus just told us that faith is also a gift. Faith is something God wants you to have. Faith is something he desires to place deep within you as a seed to continue to nurture and grow. And lastly, the scripture tells us clearly that faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Well, first, hearing scripture. Open your Bible. Read what Jesus has to say about himself. Read what he has to say about you. And let the voice of God speak to you. Jesus is the word of God. He is the voice of what God is trying to say to humanity, including you and I. But secondly, faith comes from hearing other people, being encouraged by their journeys with Jesus and understanding what they've walked through and the lows that they've experienced and the highs that they've experienced and what they have encountered about this beautiful relationship that God makes possible through his son. So spend time with people who you know are people of faith and question them. Ask them, talk about their experiences. But lastly, faith comes by hearing God's voice in prayer. God is okay with questions. If you've never read the book of Job, understand God can handle your hard questions. There's like four chapters of questions at the end. God's okay because guess what? God knows you're already struggling to believe. God knows exactly where you are on the faith journey, and he loves you. And he desires to meet you there. So as you bow your knee in your spirit in prayer, tell him, I'm struggling. I need to understand. I need to know who this Jesus really is. Because it's too beautiful to miss. All of eternity matters. All of eternity is based on who you say he is. Amen. Let's worship in song one more time and just, again, contemplate what the Lord has spoken.